We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this beautiful day and that greets us with the knowledge that you have, by your grace and your grace alone, given us breath in our lungs, joy in our hearts. Lord, the loving care of those who are in the body of Christ, our family who know you, these benefits to us, Lord Jesus, overwhelm us, Lord, as we think how we do not deserve them, and yet your blessings have overflowed to us in so many manifold ways. Lord, your blessings are too many to count. Not only, Lord, do we share them together as we fellowship among the beloved, but as we consider our great salvation, the foundation for our fellowship this morning, we are reminded of that time 2,000 years ago where you revealed yourself to Anna and to Simeon and to shepherds, to wise men, to Mary and to Joseph, and those, Lord, who gathered at that moment of your incarnation, who shared in the experience the knowledge of God arriving as the Word incarnate, the sh- fellowship that they shared, Lord. Uh, we can imagine how sweet and joyful it was because that is the fellowship that we share. We have Christ in common, the revealed Christ in common. And we thank you, Lord, that we are brothers and sisters with those who have gone before with each other in the Spirit and with all of the elect that you will draw through the proclamation of your Holy Word and through the advancement of your gospel around this globe. We pray this morning that you would give us your heart, Lord, to appreciate the things that have been forever accomplished in time because of the covenant of redemption and your purposes in history. As we open up the Scriptures, I pray, Lord, that they would come alive to our hearts and fill us with joy so that we might join with the hosts who proclaimed so long ago peace on earth among those with whom you are pleased. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. I pray that you would open now our hearts to hear your word. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 45. 41 through the end of the chapter will be our primary text this morning. You'll remember in our Matthew series how this last question, or two questions that are asked by Jesus of the Pharisees who are gathered, has been preceded by cross-examination attempts by Pharisees and Sadducees, three separate tries to befuddle one man. But this man they had grossly underestimated. This was Jesus Christ. This was God incarnate. And now we see what it looks like when God incarnate turns the tables and asks his own question, cross-examines the inquirers. This had happened in chapter 21. We'll touch on that briefly as well, where Jesus had stumped them with a question, had caused them to be silent because they did not know how to answer in such a way as to preserve their own deception. In Matthew 22, we now see Jesus befuddling them yet again in these verses. So let us stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, if you're able. Again, with your Bible open to Matthew twenty-two forty-one. Let us read these verses together. Follow me as I declare God's holy Word. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, 
verse 44, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the infallible word of God. You may be seated. A concept or an illustration came to my mind to help us understand the significance of it least what is rhetorically going on here. That is, how is Jesus using words in this altercation, in this argument, in this disputation between the religious, uh, so-called elites and professionals and experts and himself, the Lord of glory? A Webster's Dictionary definition for uh, a martial art called jiu-jitsu is as follows. Listen to this definition and see if this doesn't remind you of what Jesus is doing verbally. Jiu-jitsu is an art of weaponless fighting, employing holds, throws, and paralyzing blows to subdue or disable an opponent. This, I think, is a good illustration of how Jesus is using this opportunity of questions being asked and answered against his enemies. He turns the tables, he shuts them up, in fact. The title of this morning's message is A Setup to Shut Up. My main point in today's text, as we discover in today's text, is that Jesus set this question up to silence the mouths, to shut up the naysayers and the so-called religious uh, experts and elites. It says in our text in verse 46 that after this exchange, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. I submit to you, I am sure This is the first time a person has left Pharisees and Sadducees speechless at this time in history. Pharisees and Sadducees always had something to say. They were the ones who were actually paid to do so. They were the experts, the ones who were sought out to rule in matters and questions as to the law. But now they were asked to to rule in a matter of the law, in a matter of the historical record, and they themselves were proved speechless when the tables were turned and they could not even dare to venture an answer against the superior power and truth that Jesus wielded in this exchange. Jiu-jitsu is the word I gave you the definition for. It's a martial art that uses the enemy's own moves and attempts to hurt you against him. And I can't imagine a better description of the rhetorical prowess of Jesus Christ than this, and it's demonstrated in our text today as Jesus continues or confronts the culturally influential factions, the Pharisees and Sadducees again in context, these culturally influential factions who sought actively and intensely to undermine him at every turn in his ministry. Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, silences every mouth, And he judges every detractor effortlessly. And here we see him in action. The enemy's best defenses are employed as weapons against the enemy himself in this spectacular display of God's providence. And this is just like those other times all through history where those who stored up defenses and arguments and made their case against the Lord of glory only stored up in themselves 
debt to their own destruction. This is apparent even here where the intellectual and religious elites go head to head with perfect wisdom. That is, with Jesus Christ as perfect wisdom. In Luke 7.35, it says that wisdom is justified by her children. And that's a metaphor. The proof is in the pudding, if you will. The wisdom of Jesus Christ, the perfect word of God made flesh and dwelt among them, now speaking in their ears, was justified by his answer. And when he silenced the experts, it showed that he indeed was the most powerful voice above all others with the ability, with just a question, to silence and to judge the naysayers. In the providence of God, let me further note in our recent messages how the territory that we've covered in the book of Hebrews serves to buttress our theme today. Greatly so, in fact, as we consider Psalm 110 expounded and revealed in Hebrews chapter 7, for instance, where we see the priestly and kingly work of Christ, those loose ends of messianic prophecy tied up in the one man and God, Jesus Christ. You'll notice in Matthew 22, verse 44, Jesus quotes from the exact same text, that is, Psalm 110. Also, in introduction, before we get into the meat of this text, let me give you the question that I think is the preeminent concern for us by way of application today. This question will return to at the close of my message, and it's just the same one that Jesus opens his cross-examination with in verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Let me ask each of you in this room directly, what do you think about the Christ? This, I submit to you, is a question of utmost importance. I don't think you can find a question more important, more sobering, and more intense than that question and the way it is answered. So as you think about that, Let us add some context and some thoughts to our study today. Consider this heading. Jesus' question was a setup to reveal the following. Two questions, in fact. But he opens with that question I just gave you. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You see how in the structure of this exchange, Jesus is setting up something here? He's asking these questions strategically on purpose to press a point. And Jesus' question, I submit to you, is setting up to reveal, number one, the nature of the Messiah himself. Who was this one asking them this very question? Who was the one with whom they were speaking? Who was Jesus Christ? Who was the Messiah himself? Secondly, Jesus' question was setting up to reveal the nature of redemptive revelation. That is the nature of God's word through history as it has been recorded in process at various times and various places. Again, according to Hebrews 1, God who beforehand spoke through the mouths of prophets said, for instance, in Psalm 110 that there was to be expected a higher order of Melchizedek where a messianic figure would fulfill both king and priestly roles. And so we see Jesus identifying the Messiah and in fact we'll see further himself with uh, the redemptive revelation that has historically preceded him. 
And thirdly this morning, Jesus' question was a setup to reveal the nature of this interaction itself. What was the significance of this back and forth, the position or the, uh, uh, the situation, the framework, the state of mind, the worldview, if you will, of those who were standing there presuming to question him and Jesus Christ himself? What importance did that have? So let us consider these in some detail this morning. First of all, Jesus' question set up to reveal was a setup to reveal the nature of the Messiah himself. First subpoint, Lord and Son. And then further, we can then infer, we can draw out the meaning here of the nature of the Messiah himself as to his two natures. This is the answer in part to the question, how can the prophet, and, uh, namely David in Psalm 110, say two things about the Messiah figure, well, he can, or to say what would be on the surface, disparate uh, truths that would have disparity between them. How can you say the same about one individual? Well, he can so when we consider the two natures of Christ. He is Lord and he is Son. What do you think about the Christ? Whose Son is he? They rightly answered, but this wasn't all that the Messiah was, the Son of David in verse 42. Then notice the follow-up question, verse 43. He, Jesus, said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So you see the quandary here. How can one who is a son of David be, in fact, also David's Lord? How would you answer that question? Well, the Pharisees certainly didn't know how to answer it. But the answer we find, as Christ is revealing it in himself, as it's further expounded in the apostolic record, the answer is in his dual nature. Christ is two natures. He is fully God and fully man. This leading question compels the attentive and spirit-led hearer to study more deeply and to notice with care what is written in these significant sections of Scripture, and in this case, Psalm 110. David refers to his future son as presently Lord. Not only does David call his future son Lord, but as we go back to Psalm 110, there is a tensed way that he speaks that this is one who presently is Lord and also one who is to come. This, in fact, is incredible. It's, it's amazing to see. It says in Psalm 110.1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. How in the world could this be a prophecy about the son of David if he is both David's Lord, but not just his Lord in the future, but presently his Lord? Philippians 2 tells us. We won't go there this morning, but you'll remember in what is called the hymn to Christ or the Carmen Christi, that Christ existed eternally in pre-incarnate glory. He was the Son of God before He was the Son of David. And He was always the Son of God. When David wrote of the one who would fulfill this prophecy and fulfill the covenantal promise that there would 
always be one from his house to rule on his throne. He was speaking of one who existed at the moment he wrote Psalm 110. He was son of God. He was his Lord presently when those words were written. In fact, in the beginning, according to John 1, was this one, the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And not only was this Son of David the Son of God, but this Son of God created all things, including David himself. This is amazing. Staggering thoughts. Indeed, they border on the incomprehensible. But as the Spirit gives us the ears to hear and the spiritual eyes to see, we can uh, discover what the Pharisees, what was lost on the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the absolutely amazing depths of the truth of Scripture. David refers to his future son as presently Lord. Consider carefully this tense structure of Psalm 110 in this citation. Recall the great messianic unique indicators encoded in the Old Testament prophecies, like Isaiah 9-6. Here's another one, that without Jesus illuminating it to our minds, there would be certainly a greater degree of mystery until it was fulfilled and the Spirit brought it to our attention. We touched on this verse, I believe, last week. It's the famous text around Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah 9, 6 declares prophetically of the Messiah, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now in just that phrase, two phrases in fact, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. What do we have? We have Lord and Son. We have two natures of Christ. Child is born, speaking of Christ, the Messiah's humanity. Son is given. Carefully chosen, distinct Hebrew words speaking of Christ's divinity. As we look closely even at the original language, this distinction is borne out in the text. A child is born, speaking of his humanity. A son is born, speaking of his divinity. In these great Old Testament prophecy passages, like Isaiah 9-6, we find as we get down to the language itself that child, yaled, uh, means or 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 the word for child is yaled, and then it's followed with the word born, yalad. And born means uh, to bear, to bring forth, beget, to birth. So it's the, the process of delivery of a child, a human child. But then with the word son, bain in the Hebrew, followed by given, nathan, or nathan, as more familiar to us, that is the idea of given by God, appointed, assured, or granted. And that term should be familiar to us as well in our recent study. Because when we go to Hebrews, we see that the words that are chosen to identify the office and the fulfillment of the office of Christ are unique and specific according to his role. In other words, the parallel to the word I just read, a son is given, is in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices. Later in verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On Christmas morning, two things happened. A child was delivered, literally. And a son was given and appointed. This is powerful. This is how the question of David presently writing about Christ in the future, his son as Lord, makes sense. This is what the Pharisees did not understand. But this is who Christ was. And the Word made flesh, walking and talking among them, was revealing with the light of his proposition, the revelation of the Old Testament prophecies, fulfilled before their very eyes. All the Gospels labor to show the human history and the divinity of Jesus Christ. The Gospel writers knew this. When we go to the beginning of Matthew 1, we see these opening words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why would that be important? It's important because unto us a child is born. But then, excuse me, then as we move through the text, we see testimony to Christ's divinity. Later in this message, we'll speak about one particular instance in Matthew 16, where Jesus asked disciples, who do you say that I am? Did they say the son of David, Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Or did he say the son of God? His divine miracles, turning the water into wine, raising the dead, healing the sick, cleansing the leper. In the Old Covenant, a brief aside for you, in the Old Covenant, when something was unclean, it could not touch anything else. Everything that touched it would become unclean as well. In the New Covenant, in Christ alone, the situation is totally reversed. The supernatural cleansing power of the purity of Christ is evident in His miracles. Woman with the issue of blood breaks the old covenant ceremonial law, presses through, and touches his garments. Does it make Christ unclean? No, quite the opposite. The radioactive nature, if you will, is reversed, and Christ makes the woman clean with his touch. How could this happen? It can happen because he is the Son of God. Everything else before that represented purity and cleansing and temple order and liturgy and right ways of worship, it was all temporal. It was all passing, it was all symbolic, but now the substance had arrived, eclipsing the shadow. Unto us, not just a child is born. If it was just a child, he would die, and a new high priest would have to take his place. But to us, a son is given. So now, according to the order of Melchizedek, he reigns forever. The question that Jesus asked the Pharisees was a setup to show the nature of himself as Lord and Son. But more than that, Consider Lord and Lord in the context here. How can it be said, in other words, there's more that we can infer. Verse 44, back in our text, Matthew 22. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. There are two persons in view here in the Old Covenant in Psalm 110. How can that be the case? How can the Lord say to my Lord? Well, perhaps the answer is already in your head. The only way that this can make sense is given the nature of the Godhead. We're speaking of the Trinity now, 
more than just Lord and Lord, namely God the Father and God the Son, but notice how Jesus incorporates the Spirit in context as well. Reading again, Matthew 22, 43 and 44, He, Jesus, said to them, How is it then that David, and catch this phrase, in the Spirit, notice Spirit is capitalized, David is in the Spirit. He is writing under the influence, under the inspiration, with God breathing through him via the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord, that is God the Father, said to his Lord, David's Lord, God the Son, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Do you see the triune reference? Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit are all here in this text. This question was a setup to reveal the nature of Christ and the nature of the Godhead. There is another moment in Acts chapter 7, turn there with me if you would. There is another mo- a moment where the curtains of revelation are drawn and this time Stephen sees through them and he sees a moment of extreme significance. <clears throat> it is a parallel in his vision to this very text and Psalm 110 and numerous other points in Scripture of prophetic, messianic uh, prophecy. Verse 55, But he, this is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is a reference to what Psalm 110 prophesied. And Jesus cited, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make, till I put your enemies under your feet. But notice in context, there is a reference to the triune nature of God. The Trinity is here in Stephen's vision. Listen again, He, full of who? The Holy Spirit, again, capitalized the proper noun speaking to the third person of the Godhead. He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. There's a distinction then between Jesus and in this uh, reference, God the Father. Full of the Holy Spirit, he sees God the Son standing at the right hand of God the Father and he's identified, that is, Jesus as the Son of Man, which uh, refers right back to the prophecy of Daniel 7, Psalm 110, Matthew 22, Hebrews 7, Revelation 1. Do you see what's happening here? The pages of Scripture are unfolding. The revelation of the nature of God, it's exploding onto the scene. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit reveals the nature of Christ and the nature of God to us through these pages so that we would not be blind to it like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but would understand with amazement like the crowds who were astonished what is truly going on on here. Thirdly and finally, under the nature of the Messiah himself, there is that Son of Man reference. The Son of Man reference recalls, as we'll uh, mention a little later, Daniel chapter 7. And it also, that, that language is picked up, it's Jesus a favorite is most is preferred title for himself. This week I was listening to Christian radio and some well-meaning little snippet of information about humility, and they used Jesus' self-reference to himself as the Son of Man as an example of maybe you and I being humble. I think he missed it. When we see the Son of Man as Jesus' preferred term for himself, 
This is not a self-deprecating term. Jesus is not using this term to say, for in, uh, so to speak, I, I am just a man. You know, don't think too much of me. I'm, I'm just like you. No, this is a reference to Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 110, Daniel 7 specifically, where the Son of Man is specifically associated with the messianic figure who encompasses and who personifies and who secures an authority that absolutely transcends anything else that has preceded it by way of man's government. Uh, Turn with me to Mark 14. When Jesus is being uh, falsely tried, where they're bringing these spurious charges against him, they ask him questions as to his identity. He doesn't hide it as you might imagine he would in this case, but in full disclosure identifies even for the naysayers who he was. Mark fourteen sixty one. but he, that is Christ, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? 62, and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Listen to the response. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Why were they so irate? Why were they so angry? The same reason that they picked up stones to stone Stephen when he saw a vision of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is pictured in Psalm 110 in action, and Jesus identifies him when he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is speaking to an ascendancy, an acquisition of a kingdom, an authority that will come upon his accomplishment of the entirety of his work in redemption. This is confirmed at the end of Matthew 18, when Jesus, I'm sorry, Matthew in verse, in chapter 28, when Jesus says to those gathered who are at this point worshiping him, they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority, that is putting these verses that we're reading together, authority as of the son of man, the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. How can he say this? Because the Son of Man rules over all nations and has received a kingdom. And at this moment, at the moment in history where this occurred, we understand is the ascension of Jesus Christ, resurrected and then ascended. And at this point, it was fulfilled what Jesus himself prophesied Reiterating what was said of old, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In theology, this, uh, what is, uh, this refers to his heavenly session. And that session means his authority, his rule, his kingdom, his reign. And even now, today, at this moment, Jesus Christ has ascended and is in session, ruling and reigning as the Son 
of man. And he will do so with increasingly evident power as every single one of his enemies are put under his feet. Each and every one of you that confesses Jesus Christ in this room today were once his enemy. Where are you now? So to speak, you are under his feet. You're not under his feet in judgment, but in grace. But I'm telling you, through the power of the cross and through the resurrecting power, regenerating action of the Holy Spirit, he has conquered you. He has brought you into his kingdom. He has defeated death in the grave on your behalf, and he has put to death your old man of rebellion. And you are now one of his enemies, so to speak, that have been put in subjection to him. How much greater is the Son of Man's work manifest even in this room today as history is unfolded with more and more and more of his enemies, those who were at enmity with him, now joining his army to go forth according to Matthew 28 to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming his session, his rule, and his reign over every nation, tribe, and tongue. Amen. Jesus' question was a setup to reveal the nature of Messiah himself, and secondly, the nature of redemptive revelation, the nature of the word of God, the testimonies that went before, the words and the prophecies that were spoken. First of all, let me show you, let me demonstrate to you Jesus' view of Scripture that we can gather just from our small text today, small by way of quantity of words. Verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying? That phrase again, in the spirit, answers the question, how did Jesus view the scriptures? Jesus viewed the scriptures as absolutely inspired. I heard recently in a debate between some who now question what they consider uh, the fundamentalistic evangelical notion that every word of scripture is infallible and inspired. And if you ever wonder what a wolf sounds like, a spiritual wolf, one of their howls is something like this. Listen to it, it's subtle. But I want you to be prepared for it because I'm hearing it here and there in so-called Christian circles. Yes, uh, the Old Testament, I believe it was inspired. It was an inspired account of how a religious people viewed their God. Did you catch it? Sure, sure, yeah, the inspiration. The Old Testament is an inspired account of how a religious people viewed their God. That's what a wolf sounds like. That is questioning the inspiration of the word of God. That is not Jesus' view of scripture. That is sub-Christian. That is anti-Christ. What that phrase means to say is, to the best understanding, the authors of scripture wrote down things about God. But we got to take into account their limited knowledge, their primitive notions, their false ideas, their cultural influences, you know, the warp and woof of whatever was going on at that time. That's really inescapable. So it wasn't the word of God, I guess. Well, if we look at Scripture, we see Jesus testifying to something entirely different. That is that the words, like Psalm 110 that preceded him, 
were breathed by the power of God. We see this testimony in the New Testament as well in the apostolic record. Every word is theonostos according to Paul. It is God-breathed. It's another way of saying in the Spirit. When the book of Revelation was penned, we read some uh, words from it this morning already, Uh, John himself says that I was in the Spirit when I received my revelation. Turn with me back to 2 Samuel 23, and we can see the claim that David himself had. These are his last words as his legacy and life are concluding. It says in 2 Samuel 23, 1, Now these are the last words of David, the oracle. That means the word of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And now we have quotations in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he draws on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For he does not my house stand, for does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? David is as sure of God's promises as he is the fact that the Spirit of God spoke through him when he wrote Psalm 110. What we have in the record, not just the certainty of David. We have the certainty of Christ, who affirms it in his own words when he says, In the Spirit, David calls him Lord, saying, and then again the citation from Psalm 110. Secondly, Jesus' question was a setup to reveal, under the nature of redemptive revelation, not just the inspiration of prior scripture, but also the interpretation of the scriptures. Under this point I have, or to identify this point, I have Lord, this phrase, the Lord of interpretation. Jesus is Lord of interpretation. Again, just as a foil, as an objection, have you ever heard, well, that's your interpretation? Or have you ever heard a doubter or a naysayer say, well, sure, I hear what you're saying, but you need to understand that verse has been interpreted many different ways. Well, that may be true. But it's even more problematic when you hear, well, there really isn't any true interpretation. That can be interpreted many ways, and each one is without its merits according to the arbitrary dictates of the circumstance of the individual, whatever. Well, to hold to this low view of Scripture and, and its interpretation is to ultimately make the Word of God subjective, to reduce it to your own authority. Let me tell you that the Word of God, this is a hermeneutical principle we find in our, uh, the, the word hermeneutics is how to understand and interpret rightly a certain text. It's a hermeneutical principle of Scripture, rightly understood, that the Word of God interprets itself. A little illustration for you related to our text today. Imagine that you're driving in a car and you get that funny feeling that you missed an exit, but it's after dark. And you're on a road trip, cross state lines, and so you uh, have your spouse next to you. Honey, could you grab the map and see where we're at? I have a feeling that we're lost. 
pulls out the map, he or she, and in the dim light, in the ambient light from the gauges, you can read, you know, Rand McNally across the top. But as you open it up, you have no idea what, uh, where you're going because there isn't enough light. You, with certainty, you have an atlas, but you still don't know your direction. So what do you do? You turn on the reading light, and now you look down, and you can locate your position, and you can locate the proper direction, and you can adjust accordingly. This is a little bit like how the scriptures interpret themselves and how the revelation of the messianic prophecies of old unfolded in history. Those who read Psalm 110 of old and commented and thought on it, we gave a couple of suggestions about that in recent messages, might have had ideas in the future, but not a firm grasp on who Christ was. Enough to have faith, to be counted righteous, of course, as we find in the book of Romans, but not the full picture. That is to say, we have a fuller picture of who Christ is and how he fulfilled Psalm 110 than those of the old covenant had. What happened when Jesus was speaking in this exchange? And what did his question set up when he was uh, arguing with the Pharisees? It was like that light switch. Jesus turned on the light switch to reveal the map, and now the dots of redemptive revelation could be connected. Oh, and then you see it through Scripture, do you not? Think of the map of revelation that has been unfolding for us even in our own studies. Psalm 110, Daniel 7, Matthew 22, Acts 7, Hebrews 7, Revelation 1, and it goes on and on. We'll open up just a couple of those to illustrate this in a moment. But before we do so, I want us to consider that Jesus Christ interprets scriptures for us. And while we are, uh, st or, or, and while we, without the help of the scripture and without its continually unfolding, uh, walk as though there is a veil or we see as though there is a veil in front of our eyes, it is removed by greater degree the more we understand the glorious disclosure that this book gives us. The clear directions when the light switch, as the Spirit illumines through the words of Christ, how these words are coming true. Notice in John chapter 5, just briefly, a more direct, an, an even more direct reference to Jesus' authority to interpret Scripture. This to underscore this truth that Jesus is Lord of interpretation. John 5, 38. And you do not have this word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Again, he's speaking to the naysayers. You search, verse 39, the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Now remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were experts on scripture. The man who had just questioned Jesus in Matthew 22 was in fact a lawyer. He was an expert among Pharisees and most of them probably had the Torah memorized. Jesus says of these that they think that they have eternal life says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they, that is, it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see what Jesus was saying? I am Lord of the interpretation of scripture. You may have it memorized. You may consider yourself an expert in it. But if you do not see Christ, you do not have eternal life. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not 
uh, have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Boy, does this shoot to pieces the notion that the Old Testament is an, uh, is an inspired record of how Moses thought about God. No, Jesus points to Moses as the very one who testifies against the Pharisees. Why? Because Moses wrote of him. Verse 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Bible interprets itself. Jesus is Lord of interpretation. And the scriptures only become illumined when the light switch of Jesus' authority and power to reveal and the Holy Spirit's work on our own heart, drawing our personal attention to it, is active and real in our lives. Now, this map of Revelation, connecting the dots, we've already covered Psalm 110. You don't have to necessarily turn to these references. But as we begin to put them together, it's just amazing to see the glorious thread of Revelation through Scripture in Psalm 110, it was prophesied, of course, as we've read on a number of occasions, that there would be one who would sit down at the right hand of God and would receive a kingdom. In Daniel 7, verse 13, Daniel has a vision. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There we have our Son of Man reference in the Old Covenant Scriptures. When we get to Matthew 22, and Jesus says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now we begin to see the dots, the roadmap, the atlas, if you will, revealing to us that this Messiah is going to connect these dots of Scripture. We move to Acts chapter 7, as we read briefly a moment ago, where the heavens are opened by way of revelation to one Stephen, and as he preaches the gospel according to the vision that he sees, again he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Hebrews 7, we've covered this one at length lately. After again quoting Psalm 110 at length, the author says, You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, for instance. In Hebrews 7, uh, 17, he has said at the beginning of the text that Jesus himself, um, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and enjoying a position, as he goes on to say, superior to even the angels. This is possible insofar as he fulfills what Psalm 110 goes on later to, de to describe the order of Melchizedek. As he says in 7.1, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, therefore he is King of Righteousness uh, and, and King of Peace. Therefore, according to this order, 
He, by the power of an indestructible life, remains a priest forever. And so we see his authority and the nature of his office expounded. And finally, this is just an example of how the scriptures come alive and how the dots are connected when we let the word of Christ be the interpretive grid. In Revelation 1.12, John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like who? Like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And we see this picture of his utter majesty revealed. This has been preceded by verse uh, 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and who? The ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen to this, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Remember Mark, that reference before the Sanhedrin. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the Son of Man, and this is the unfolding map of redemptive revelation. And Jesus' question of the Pharisees set all this up. Finally, this morning's third major point, the nature of this. Can, let us consider in context of Matthew 22, the nature of this interaction. Jesus' questions set up some interesting truths in context about the relationship between him as son of man, as judge, as lord of glory, as king of kings, and those who would presume to question him. First of all, let us notice that his question is sort of a counter-catechesis, a catechism or to catechize. That just means it's a process of asking questions so as to learn or as a teaching or learning tool. Well, in Matthew 22, the lawyer had come to Jesus and asked him what would have been a very rudimentary question, a catechism-type question that a child would be asked in verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus goes on to answer it. And the man in the book of Mark, it records, is forced to affirm his answer. Well, Jesus answers in a comparable way when he also asks a very simple elementary question. This would have been one of the earliest you know, what, uh, doctrine 101 questions a, a Jewish child would learn or would encounter in his studies. In verse 42, Jesus simply asks, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And then, you know, the chorus of children would answer in their, you know, Sunday school class in the synagogue, the son of David. But what is different about Jesus? That's a, a way that his question is similar. But what is different? Jesus takes this basic and elementary question and he presses in to its significance. And he shows with this rhetorical jujitsu, if you will, the power behind this uh, truth that the Messiah would be the son of David. When he goes on to say what this implies, if he is the son of David, how is he also his Lord? He is setting up the experts in the law with a very simple question by its implications, a scenario that shuts them up. 
They refuse to ask any more questions. They refuse to pick a theological fight with him anymore. Jesus is using their very approach against them. Let us remember, too, in this context that Jesus, get, this isn't the first time he has gained the upper hand. Every time he answered their cross-examinations, it was similar, but he had also asked them a question that stumped them before. You remember in chapter 21, he says, uh, in verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. See, he has done it. And he did it again in Matthew 22. He said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It was a setup to shut them up. If the Pharisees had answered this question, Oh, we accept the baptism of John. We've already noted in the book of John itself that they would also be accepting, behold, the Lamb of God. John said the reason I baptize is to reveal the, the Messiah. And when Jesus came into the presence of the baptizer, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. I must uh, decrease. He must increase. Follow him. Follow him. That's what John's baptism was. Could the Pharisees accept it? Of course not. They could not accept that Jesus was the Lamb of God. They would sooner be shut up, be proven foolish, be stumped in these exchanges than admit the truth. Their rebellion was beginning to show more and more on their sleeve. Their hypocrisy was increasingly evident. And as we noticed before, the hypocritical nature of those who claim to be experts in the law being twisted into utter knots by being held accountable to its truth because they wouldn't submit and surrender to the Lord of the law this hypocrisy is worthy of the strongest judgment language that will continue through the book in chapters 23, 24, and 25. Speaking of chapter 25, I want to make the case this morning that the nature of this interaction in chapter 22 is a foreshadow of final judgment. Note, first of all, there's two different kind of responses in the text to the way Jesus answers questions. The first one, as we've noted before, is in verse 33, Matthew 22. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And it seems of late I never grow tired of giving, to you, giving you the Greek word, ekplaso, of astonished. Why? Because it means to be struck out of self-possession of one's senses. That's so awesome. What an awesome phrase. To be struck out of possession of one's own senses. So this reaction to Jesus' teaching is... Yes, silence, but it's a silence of utter amazement to be awestruck by the glory of Christ. But there is a second reaction, and this is a silence of judgment, and that's in verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. I'm telling you that this is a foreshadowing of final judgment. There will come a day where every knee will bow, Every tongue will confess and every naysaying voice will be silenced on that final day. And there will be sheep and goats, wheat and chaff, and on the one side they will be silenced in awe and reverent worship. And on the other side they will be silenced by the authoritative 
revelation of the judgment of the Son of Man. They will close their mouth never to utter a single blasphemy ever again. This is a prefiguring of the conditions in Matthew 25, where as we see the Jesus prophesying in verse 31, the Son of Man comes in glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Again, the reference to the Son of Man type authority. Before him will be gathered who? All the nations. He will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep. And then it goes on. And so you see here that even in the context of the narrative, this bifurcation, this separation of wheat and chaff is taking place. And of course, this is a fulfillment of John the Baptist's own words. He will come and baptize with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will separate the wheat from the chaff. This is amazing to behold, this foreshadowing of final judgment. Either with amazement or speechless, Jesus silences all as he speaks. In John chapter 5, verse 22 through 29, we won't cover it in detail this morning, but I urge you to study that on your own time. It's a, a further reading in, uh, from a reference we already or I already uh, referred to earlier in the message. But here, the Son of Man as judge, that connection is directly stated, and Jesus goes on, or and Jesus expounds his authority, power, and intent, in fact, to act within that calling and role. Finally, this morning, this question sets up the nature of this interaction, um, Christ versus the crowds. And the final point I want to make is with this preeminent question. When Jesus asked this question, it's a question that rings with timeless significance. It was a question that was relevant for Adam and Eve, and it will be relevant for the last child that's born in this eschaton. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think? Those of us gathered here, those of you gathered here in this room today, what do you think? about the Christ. Now this same question virtually was asked not of the Pharisees but of the disciples in Matthew 16:13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "Who do people say that the son of man is?" They said, "Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets." But he said to them, "Listen, but who do you say that I am?" Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This, I submit to you, is a preeminent question. It is the eternal question that will be asked of everyone who has ever, who is alive, and who will, whoever, will, or, and, and who will be born in the future. Who is, or who do you think, or what do you think about the Christ? Who do you say that I am? Everyone will be asked this question. Everyone on the final day, if not sooner, will be cross-examined by the Son of Man judge with this question. What do you think? about the Christ, your answer will be your last words. Will your last words be like David's recorded in 2 Samuel 23? 
What will they be? Depending on what they are, depending on how you answer that question, either with astonishing silence and amazement or being silenced before the judge as a rebel who would not repent, determines your destiny. In the one case, according to Matthew 25, there will be a departing into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. In the other case, for those in Christ will be inheriting the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, according to Matthew 25, 34. What makes all the difference in the world in the book of Matthew is what Jesus goes on to do and to fulfill. When he goes to the cross, when he sheds his blood for us, his grace and forgiveness is now a present and purchased reality to all who surrender to him as Lord, confess their sins and place their faith and answer the question, what do you think about Christ? You are the son of the living God. Let us close in prayer. O oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to have our heart laid bare before the truth of your holy word. I pray that you would awaken us to the reality, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, unto repentance if necessary. Those of us even who are in you certainly, Lord, have areas of our life that are grossly unconformed to the glory and astonishment, to the faithfulness and worship that you truly deserve. I pray that in the light of your word, you would conform us into the image of Christ. If there are any here, Lord, who are feeling the gospel call for the first time, if there are any who, um, Lord, the, the, the veil perhaps is being removed and they see themselves standing before the judge of the universe and they are not assured the righteous blood of Christ has washed away their sins. I pray that they would cling to the cross, that they would confess their sins and place faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. I pray, Lord Jesus, as a result of your word going forward and the testimony of your saints leaving this place unto fields that I pray you make ripe unto harvest, that there might be a chorus of those who answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.